Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number six, Second Samuel chapter five. Second Samuel chapter five presents us with an opportunity for several detours. We're going to take some of them. Now on the surface, this chapter seems to be simple and straightforward, but in actuality, it's full of all kinds of twists and turns, and it's just brimming with information and mystery. Those who are students of the Bible like ourselves need to examine. In some cases, it speaks of things that were common knowledge to the people of that day, but for us moderns, it needs some explanation. So expect the unexpected. All right, as we spend more time in this chapter than you might have thought we would, I think you're going to find it interesting and useful. Ishbosheth, king of the northern group of Israelite tribes, that's King Saul's former kingdom, is dead at the hands of assassins who brought Ishbosheth's head to David in hopes of receiving a reward. 2 Samuel chapter 4 sets the historical stage for David becoming the first king of Israel to rule over a united nation of all the Israelite tribes. Now the use of the name or term Israel is complex. And its meaning and intent changes as we work our way through the Bible. So here is our first detour. And it's to explain the term Israel. Israel is at the center of all Bible stories since late in Genesis. And Israel is at the heart of all Bible prophecies. Fulfilled or future to us. So it's vital that we understand the various applications of the term. And the first thing to know is that the term Israel is highly anachronistic. That is, one must know the precise era and the setting to understand what Israel meant at any given time because it changed and evolved. Now the first use of the term Israel was merely as a new name or title for that great patriarch, Jacob. Since that title was given to Jacob by Yehovah, then obviously it carries much weight. So to be clear, the original use of the word Israel applied but to a single individual. Only after Jacob had a number of sons and his clan grew in number and influence, did Israel come to denote Jacob's descendants as a people group. Centuries after Jacob's death, Joshua led this people group called Israel into the promised land, but immediately they fractured into tribal alliances and their common ancestral heritage became a matter of secondary importance to them. Some of the people group called Israel decided not to enter into the promised land at all and settled on the east bank of the Jordan River. The group that did cross the river 
and enter into the Promised Land divided itself into two main coalitions, the northern and the southern. And since the northern coalition held itself up as the majority and said that they represented at least ten of the twelve tribes, which was an exaggeration, they claimed the right to consider themselves as Israel. The southern coalition that consisted of Judah and Simeon, but were always totally dominated by Judah, was considered a breakaway group. They were seen as a separate entity from Israel and even went by the name Judah. Now stay with me because shortly we're going to begin to talk about Jerusalem. And this information becomes all the more important that I'm telling you. So when David first became a king, he was king only over the modest-sized entity called Judah. Just this portion. He was not the king of Israel. At least not in the eyes of the twelve tribes. And when Saul was king, he tried to be king over all the tribes, but only those of the northern coalition accepted him as such. Judah condescended to King Saul's administration to some degree, but only so far as to gain whatever benefit they could from the relationship and to prevent a direct confrontation with the north. But the tension between Israel and Judah was palpable. It often spilled over into armed conflict. The people of Judah and Simeon certainly acknowledged that they shared a common ancestor with the northern tribes, who was of course Jacob. But at that time the reality of a common heritage took a back seat to all of the man-made political realities. Thus as we approach chapter 5 of 2 Samuel Keep in mind that by the northern coalition of tribes agreeing at this point to make David their king, it's not unlike a new state being added to the USA. Judah and Israel were separate entities. And what was about to happen was that they would join together and become a single entity under one king. Since this separateness was many centuries old, it was quite traumatic. It was a very traumatic event when the northern and the southern coalitions became joined together. And as one can imagine, not all the clans and families agreed with doing this. Benjamin, most of all, hated the idea. After all, the first two kings of Israel were Benjamites. And with that came a lot of prestige and benefit for their tribe. You know, it's one thing to turn the kingship over to one or the other members of the Northern Northern Tribal Coalition. It's quite another to voluntarily give yourself over to the rule of that southern tribal coalition, Judah. This was a big deal. Thus, beginning with chapter 5, it can quickly get confusing 
as to when the term Israel means only the northern tribes versus when it means all the tribes of Israel as a newly unified group under David. And then there is the issue that in one context, Israel is the people of the twelve tribes, and in another context, Israel is the land of the people of the twelve tribes. Now I'm going to try to point out which is which as we go along. So, let's read 2 Samuel chapter 5. Open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 5. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page uh, 339. Second Samuel chapter 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David in Hebron and said, Here, we are your own flesh and bone. In the past, when Shaul was king over us, it was you who led Israel's military campaigns. And Adonai said to you, You will, worship, you will shepherd my people Israel. You will be chief over Israel. So all the leaders of Israel came to the king in Hebron and King David made a covenant with them in Hebron in the presence of Adonai. Then they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began his rule. He ruled 40 years. In Hebron, he ruled over Yehudah seven years and six months. Then in Yerushalayim, he ruled 33 years over all Israel and Judah. The king and his men went to Jerusalem to attack the Yavusi, the inhabitants of that region. And they taunted David, you won't get in here. Even the blind and the lame could fend you off. In other words, they were thinking, David will never get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Sion, also known now as the city of David. What David said on that day was, in order to attack the Jebusites, you have to climb up from the spring outside the city through the water tunnel, and then you can do away with those so-called lame and blind, whom David despises, hence the expression, the lame and the blind keep him from entering the house. David lived in the stronghold, and he called it the city of David. Then David built up a city around it, starting at the Milo and working inward. David grew greater and greater because Adonai, the god of armies, was with him. Hiram, king of Tzor, sent envoys to David with cedar logs, and with them were carpenters and stonemasons, and they built David a palace. David then knew that Adonai had set him up as king over Israel and increased his royal power for the sake of his people. David took for himself more concubines and wives in Jerusalem after coming from Hebron, so that still more sons and daughters were born to David. Here are the names of those born to him in Jerusalem: Shamwah, Shobav, Natan, Shlomo, Yichar, Elishua, Nafeg, Yafia, Elishma, Eliada, and Eliphelet. And when the Pilshtim heard that David had anointed uh, had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up in search of David. And on learning of it, David went down to the stronghold. And the Philistines came and deployed in the Rephaim Valley. And David consulted Adonai, asking, Should I attack the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? 
And Adonai answered David, Attack! I will certainly hand the Philistines over to you. So David went to Baal Pratzim and defeated them there. And he said, Adonai has broken through my enemies for me like a river breaking through its banks. This is why he called the place Baal Pratzim. The Pilishtim had left their idols there, so David and his men took them away. The Pilishtim came up again and deployed in the Rephaim Valley. And when David consulted Adonai, he said, Don't attack. Circle behind them. Engage them all opposite the balsam trees. And where you, when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, advance. Because then Adonai has gone out ahead of you to defeat the army of the Philistines. David did exactly as Adonai had ordered him to do and he pursued his attack of the Philistines from Geva all the way to Gezer. <clears throat> Hebron is the unofficial capital of Judah. Now this city had a heritage that could be traced all the way back to Father Abraham. David chose to move from Ziklag, which was in Philistine territory, to Hebron because it was so thoroughly understood in this region that Hebron was the most prominent city of this entity called Judah. Now this bought him a couple of things. First, it placed him in the power center of Judah, which is, of course, where the prospective leader of Judah was obligated to reside. And second, Judah, and therefore Hebron, wasn't seen by the Philistines as their enemy, as was Israel to the north. King Saul fought against the Philistines as the king of Israel. And when Saul died, Ishbosheth became the new king of Israel, and so he was instantly an enemy of the Philistines. David first became king over Judah, not Israel. And so while this event probably rankled the Philistines a little bit, Judah was not the Philistines' enemy. And so they remained on relatively peaceful terms with David's administration. But that was all about to change. Verse 1 has an entourage of elders from the Northern Tribal Coalition. This is Israel, formerly governed by Saul and then Ishbosheth. It has them coming to Hebron to finalize a joining together, or perhaps better, a rejoining of Israel with Judah. And when they addressed David, they stated four reasons why they see this joining as the right thing to do. First, David was already a king. Even though he was only king over Judah, he had established himself as royalty. He was accepted as a legitimate monarch. And so for the northern coalition, there would be no shame in placing themselves under an existing king. Second, the northern elders pointed out that they were related by blood to David. We are your own flesh and bone, they said. Their common connection to Jacob, that really hadn't mattered all that much over the last 
few centuries and was really only brought up when it was convenient, was now invoked as a good and proper reason for them to give their allegiance to David and thus for David to treat them not as vassals but as brethren, which of course they were. Third, as it says in verse 2, they always saw David as their real leader, as the real leader of Israel. King Saul's northern coalition because David led so many of Saul's successful military campaigns. And fourth, they acknowledge that Jehovah had decreed that David would be king over all of Israel. Here meaning all 12 tribes. So we again run into this statement that God had anointed David as king over all Israel. And while we find no surviving biblical narrative of such a public statement made by God or by a prophet of God, there's no doubt of some recorded and commonly known divine oracle to that effect that apparently has been lost to history. So the elders of the north saw David as their natural brother and as a proven and demonstrated leader of the northern tribal army in times past, and so they were comfortable to place themselves under his monarchy. They made a covenant with David, and there was this anointing ceremony. Now, I want to stress yet again that for us, in hindsight, see, we easily view the twelve tribes of Israel as a unity and therefore as natural brethren as all of the tribes came from the loins of Jacob. But in that era, in the era we are witnessing here, in the north, as is the north is anointing David their king, this would be akin, think about this, to the USA renouncing our sovereignty that we had earned in a war against King George of England and then voluntarily rejoining ourselves to England under their governance. While we might be able to recognize such a thing by saying that, well, historically, we were at one time literally connected to England through common ancestors, you know, to do such a thing would be terribly radical and likely not very popular. Also recognize that approximately the same amount of time has passed since the USA gained its independence from England until today as when Judah and Israel split apart from one another until David's time. So a lot of time had passed. The two kingdoms warred against one another. Their separateness was well established. And generations came and went with people who identified themselves either to Israel or to Judah. So any sense of kinship between Judah and Israel wouldn't have been very strong by David's day. Now this is a very good context to hang on to as we go forward because it helps us understand many of the actions we're going to see unfold in the coming chapters. Now verse 4 states 
that David was 30 years old when he began to rule, and he ruled for 40 years. Now first understand that these are round numbers that are also idealized numbers. You see, 30 was seen as the prime of life when mental and physical capabilities are at their greatest and when sufficient wisdom has been gained to property, properly utilize those uh, capabilities. The age of 30 was eventually adopted as the earliest age allowable for a Hebrew to become a rabbi. It's no coincidence that Yeshua began his ministry at 30 years of age. That David ruled for 40 years is also an approximate and idealized number. In fact, the very next verse says that he ruled over Judah for seven and one half years and then ruled over Jerusalem as king over all Israel for 33 more years. A little quick math adds that up to 40 and a half. See, the number 40, follow me here, the number 40 is often indicative of a generation. And a generation is often meant to be seen as more of an era than how we tend to think of a generation as kind of being the way we divide families into parents and then children and grandchildren and so on. Forty is also thought of as a fullness of time. The proper amount of time for all that God intended to happen to bring something about. And as the divine number of time, whether expressed in days, months, or years, for testing and trials. So the bottom line is that neither David's quoted age of 30 nor the quoted years of his reign are 40 are meant to be precise. No doubt they're very close. But they could be off by a few months, maybe a year, or so according to a calendar date. These two round numbers carry a much greater significance in their spiritual meaning than merely as historically appropriate data. Notice something else about David becoming a king. It was a long process that took place on a winding and unlikely road. I think we should see this process as a pattern that was fulfilled in Messiah Yeshua. Jesus was designated by the Father as the king, the prince really, the Nagid, the prince in waiting, the king in waiting, long before it ever becomes a reality. Yehovah ordained David as king over his people long before the actual earthly event caught up to this spiritual reality. So many things had to be accomplished along the way. So much had to align in order for David to gain the throne of Israel. The same thing is happening for Messiah. In fact, the earthly reality of Yeshua's kingship is still in our future. 
even though it was predicted in the prophets more than 2,500 years ago, and it happened to a largely spiritual extent 2,000 years ago. Christ becoming king over God's kingdom is a long process with much that has to happen along the way. It's not a singular event. Now verse 6 briefly tells us the story of a critical event that affects the entire world. In fact, it's probably more important today than it was when it first happened. Verse 6 begins the story of the establishment of Jerusalem, Yerushalayim, as the capital of David's and thus God's kingdom. Now the first part of this verse explains that the king and his men went to Yerushalayim to attack it. These men were David's private army, not the tribal or national army. So it was not a huge contingent of men, but they were loyal, well-trained, experienced warriors. Now this fact is going to play an important role that we're going to get to shortly. In order to understand what is going on, we need to understand the nature of Jerusalem in this era as well as its past. So we're going to take another detour to see what we can find out about this wonderful city. Modern archaeology, along with the discovery and translation of some ancient clay tablets, has helped us to piece together the astounding history of this place. If we were to pin a date on a calendar for David's attack on Jerusalem, it'd probably be around 990 B.C., give or take a year or so. But this city was known and its existence was recorded long before that. Jerusalem is one of the most ancient cities in the world. It's mentioned by name in the famous Ebla archives. These Ebla archives consist of some 15,000 clay tablets that were uncovered starting in the late 1960s in northern Syria. Written in the ancient Akkadian language, these tablets tell of the reign of King Ibit-Ilim, the ruler of a place called Ebla that lays only 150 miles from Haran, which is the place where Abraham lived for a long time. The tablets have been dated to 2500 BC. And in them is found the record of the Canaanite city of Yerushalayim, along with a description of where it was located. There is no doubt it's the same place that we call Jerusalem today. How much before 2500 B.C. Yerushalayim existed is debatable. The point is that this city existed at least 500 years before the time of Abraham. 1500 years before David set about to conquer it. Now, Akkadian 
is the mother language of Hebrew. In scholarly terms, it's the cognate language of Hebrew. And so as more and more has recently been understood about the Akkadian language, we have learned more and more about the meanings of the earliest known Hebrew words as we find them in the Torah, particularly in the book of Genesis. There's always been debate about the precise meaning of the term Yerushalayim. But in reality, it turns out that Yerushalayim is an Akkadian word. It's not a Hebrew word. Okay. Now, that this fact has been recognized, it's clear that it means something like the foundation of Shalem. It's also clear that Shalem was the name or, or the chief attribute of a god. So perhaps the better way to say it is the foundation of the god Shalem. Now, Shalem, I'm sure, sounds familiar to you, as it should, because the word Shalom is taken from it. So the idea is that the god of this city of 2500 BC was a god with the attribute of Shalom. I wonder who that can be. Turn your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. We're going to read just a few verses. Genesis 14 through 20. Genesis 14, 14 through 20. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 13. When Avram heard that his nephew had been taken captive, he led out his trained men who had been born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, he and his servants divided his forces against them and attacked and pursued them all the way to Hovah, north of Damasek. That's Damascus. And he recovered all the goods, and he brought back his nephew Lot with his goods, together with the women and the other people. And after his return from slaughtering Ketolomer and the kings with him, the king of Saddam went out to meet him in the Shave Valley, also known as the King's Valley. Melchizedek, king of Shalem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of El Elyon, so he blessed him with these words. Blessed be Avram by El Elyon, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be El Elyon, who handed your enemies over to you. Avram gave him a tenth of everything. Here we find the story of the mysterious Melchizedek, king and priest, of the city of Shalem. Yep, the same Shalem as in the Ebla archives documents. And we know from the narrative of Melchizedek that he worshipped the one true creator God that he also called El Elyon, the Most High God. Now, there is little doubt that the language Abraham spoke at this time was 
and it was Akkadian. Right? He was an Amorite who had only recently arrived from Mesopotamia. And certainly it is also Akkadian that Melchizedek spoke. Hebrew wasn't even yet its own language. Okay? Akkadian is a Semitic language. Let me remind you that the term Semitic is essentially a mispronunciation. It ought to be pronounced Shemitic. Semite means from the line of Shem. Shem was one of Noah's three sons. So Akkadian is a language that is traced backwards towards Shem and Abraham and Melchizedek both speak some form of it. And we know from ancient non-biblical records that the city of Shalem existed at least 500 years before Abraham. Now the most ancient Hebrew tradition on the subject insists unequivocally that Melchizedek was none other than the very aged Shem. Why then didn't they just call Melchizedek Shem? Because Melchizedek's not a name. It's a title. It means the king of righteousness. So while Shem is a formal name, like Yeshua is a formal name, Melchizedek is a title or an attribute, like Messiah is a title or an attribute. Okay? And biblical genealogical records make it clear that Shem was still living when Abraham was alive. Now while proof is much too big a word to use in this situation, the circumstantial evidence just keeps getting greater that indeed Shem was the king and priest of the God Most High, that he lived at the city of Shalem, that he held the title of Melchizedek, and that this is who Abraham met at the city of Shalem called Yerushalayim in Akkadian. Now, another name that we're going to find in the Bible for this place is called Jebus or Yevus. And the name of the inhabitants of this place, as we read of David getting ready to attack it, is the Jebusites. Okay? Judges 19.10 says this. But the man wouldn't stay that night, so he got up and left his concubine and saddled two donkeys. And they arrived at Jabus, also known as Jerusalem. So we know without doubt that Jabus and Jerusalem are the same place, just spoken in two different languages or under two different circumstances. Since many places and locations in the Bible have existed for hundreds and thousands of years, their place names have changed and they're called by different names as time moves on. You know, Las Vegas is at times called Sin City, or just Vegas for short. 
Los Angeles is at times called the city of angels or just L.A. It was called, matter of fact, it was called the place of 10,000 smokes all right, before that by the Chumash Indians who lived there. So laymen and scholars have had a hard time trying to understand what the many words for this place, Yerushalayim, have meant over the ages. Now so far, we've seen this place called Yerushalayim, Jebus, and the city of Shalem. The story of the taking of Yerushalayim by David adds the terms the stronghold, the city of David, the Milo, and Zion. So which is which and what's what? Let's try to straighten some of that out, which I think is going to result in your general Bible reading being more meaningful at times, and it's also going to lend some needed help in understanding prophecies. Now, ancient cities don't generally begin as walled cities. Rather, they usually begin as small villages. And then for some important reason or another, the settlement is seen as more valuable than usual, so an an enemy covets it. And then it's walled for protection against that enemy. Now, building a wall around a city is a formidable undertaking. It took a strong and powerful leader to order it and see it through and a substantial population to provide the manpower to construct it. The original Yerushalayim, before it was a walled city, would have been a village with farmers and herders with their fields and pastures surrounding it. Further, these ancient villages and cities didn't have precise boundaries. Today, you know, we measure the boundaries of everything from residential lots right up to the boundaries of nations right down to the millimeter. Because we're able to. But in ancient times, the boundaries, boundaries were general and approximate. A valley, a hillside, a plain, up to a river or up to a boulder. But once you wall off an area you have by definition created a precise boundary. And in ancient times, when an ill-defined but named area had a walled city built upon some part of it, usually that walled city was given a separate name from the area where it was built. Or it was called the city of so-and-so, meaning the city that was built upon an area of land that had a certain name. Often it was called for a god or a king. Yerushalayim was the name for the village and all the surrounding area originally. We don't know of another name going back any further than this. At some point, the place also became known as Jebus. Because Jabus was the name of a tribe or a clan of Canaanites who either inhabited the place or, or maybe built it up. In any case, it was these Jebusites who currently inhabited the area in David's time and also currently held the walled city. And one of the names assigned to that walled city portion of the place was called interestingly, Zion. 
Now, a walled city is also a stronghold. It was a fallback place where one can defend against intruders. The reason it's sometimes termed a stronghold is because the vast majority of the people living at a place lived outside of the city walls. So you would have a, a walled city where the king and his family and his court and maybe merchants and others with reason and status to have the privilege of living inside those walls it's where they resided. And then the general and larger population lived in buildings outside of those walls. These villagers gave their allegiance to the king of the city for the very reason that if danger from an attacker came, the gates would be open to allow the villagers to come inside and the place would become their stronghold. Thus the general area was called Yerushalayim and Jabus, but the walled city portion was called Zion. When David captured it, he changed the name from Zion to the city of David. But as is obvious, the name Zion has been retained and applied for other purposes that we're not going to get into right now. Now there is another reference in these passages to a place called the Milo. Now the term means earth mound or, or rampart or, or in modern language a terrace is probably apt. Now I'm confident that this is referring to what is today called the Ophel that's located just outside of the ancient wall at the north end of the city of David. Ophel is another word for mound or, or, or even slope. And if one looks at a map of ancient Jerusalem, you see that the city of David is the oldest and original walled portion. And it's located well down the slope well down the slope from Mount Moriah where the temple is built. The city of David is bordered by, by canyons and ravines including the Kidron Valley which made it more difficult to attack. Then there is a substantial open place open space rather between the northern wall of the, of the city, of the city of David and between the Temple Mount area and that area was called the Ophel. I suspect that the plan was in time to have that wall encompass the area. It was in the area of the Ophel that many villagers built their homes in order to expand the city. And in any case, that's actually what we're hearing described in verse 9. Well, the reason David attacked Jerusalem was to make it his capital. Okay? Hebron was the very symbol of the kingdom of Judah. And so the northern tribal coalition would never accept Hebron as a capital for all of Israel. In fact, I highly suspect that part of the covenant treaty 
that the elders from the north signed with David specifically demanded that a new capital be found that was more neutral in its location. Well, Yerushalayim was right on the border between Israel and Judah. It wasn't even inhabited by Hebrews, so you can't get much more neutral than that. But there's another aspect that is invariably overlooked. So before we move on, let me explain something else that I have rarely, if ever, heard discussed. Over and over, just as we see the two terms Judah and Israel tied together, we'll often see the two terms Jerusalem and Judah tied together. As you now know, the reason Judah and Israel are tied together is not because they were two different names for the same place, but rather because indeed they were two separate entities. Only when tied together did they form all of Israel. Separately, they each only represented a part of Israel. So why are Judah and Jerusalem so often spoke of in similar fashion? Well, all the evidence and circumstances indicate that at the very least, that portion of Yerushalayim called the city of David was held on to by David as his private estate. Let me say that another way. The city of David belongs strictly to David as his own private property and it was not considered as national territory. This explains why it is that David used his private army instead of his national army to conquer Jabus. By doing so, this would be seen as more of a private rather than a national endeavor. Had he used the tribal troops to conquer the the walled city, the tribal leaders would have expected this to be seen as a joint expedition and thus the walled city becomes national property. Now don't let that confuse you. Right? Because in the USA we have a similar situation. Washington DC was chosen to be the capital of the USA precisely because it wasn't part of any state. And it remains so to this day. Therefore Washington DC is considered as a neutral site. It's not affiliated with any state or coalition of states, making it the ideal place for the central government. The main difference between what David did and what happened in America is that Washington, D.C. is not privately owned property, but it seems that the city of David was. It was David's private property. So one way to think about it is that while the city of David was located in Jerusalem, It was a privately held section of Jerusalem that was walled off, owned by the king, and treated very differently than the rest of Yerushalayim that lay outside the walls. Now that kind of philosophy, interestingly, seems to have embedded itself in the very essence of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel from David's day forward. That is, Jerusalem was in Israel, it was the capital of Israel, but it was also seen as a somewhat separate entity. Washington, D.C. is in America, it's the capital of America, but it is seen as a somewhat separate entity. 
apart from the confederation of 50 states that forms America, right? Even in Jesus' day, when the Holy Land was divided up into the Roman provinces of Idumea, Perea, uh, Samaria, Galilee, and Judah, or better, Judea, Jerusalem was spoken of as a separate entity. Thus we have numerous mentions, even in the New Testament, of Judah, Judea, and Jerusalem, mentioned separately. You know, it's interesting how even today, many Jews and many Christians, for that matter, can accept the idea of Jerusalem being an international city that is located in the heart of Israel but at the same time could be seen as a separate entity that is operated by some international body such as the UN. Thus it could be that perhaps Jerusalem under that circumstance could be the capital of Israel and the capital of a Palestinian state simultaneously using that philosophy. In fact, That is more or less how Jerusalem was envisioned by the UN when the land was apportioned into Jewish and Arab states over six decades ago. Jerusalem was to be owned by neither the Jews nor the Arabs. It was to be neither Jewish nor Arab territory. Rather, it was to be a neutral site, a world heritage site for everybody to enjoy. Of course, many more Jews and Arabs reject that idea than those who accept it. But I think we'll see the international city concept rise again in the very near future as the demand intensifies for Israel to return to its pre-1967 borders. In case you might be thinking that there is biblical backing based on David's actions for that idea, Forget it. Jerusalem was the capital only of Israel. It wasn't an international city. David was the king. And he owned only the city of David. Not all of Jerusalem. So we must be clear that correctly speaking, the city of David was not Israel's capital but Yerushalayim was. The city of David was just David's private and secure personally owned compound. Which explains why the temple was not built in the city of David, but rather in Jerusalem upon Mount Moriah. Okay, We'll continue with another interesting and different unexplored aspect about David's taking of Jerusalem next week.